Hi, this is Dee Wallace, and you're listening to the Then Is Now podcast. Warning, warning. Today's episode contains spoilers. So if you have not seen the movie or TV show that we are talking about, we highly recommend that you watch it first, then listen to this episode. Thank you. Rise and shine, my sinners. When Father Evil starts his day, he gets a little deadly. Deadly Grounds Coffee has the richest, smoothest flavor you'll find anywhere. It's sinfully delicious. Once you go deadly, you never go back. Order yours at getdeadly.com. Coffee's so good, it's scary. Hello and welcome to Then Is Now Podcast's yearly 13 Days of Hallowtober event. I am your host, Rigor, and joining me once again today is podcaster Rod Barnett. Glad you could be here, Rod. Hey, glad to be here, man. This is great. Awesome, awesome. Um, so, Rod, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your podcast? Oh, well, uh, currently there are 700 of them. No, uh, there are only three. <laughs> but uh, it does feel at times as if I am running more than I should. Uh, first up is the flagship show, the one that started me podcasting 12 or 13 years ago, The Nashy Cast, where we uh, cover the films of Paul Nashy and various assorted connected films of Spanish horror, both uh, old and new. Uh, that one's still going, although uh, we only get out a few episodes a year of that. This year we've been uh, having a third co-host on the show, Mr. Bob Sargent, who is uh, in many ways one of the reasons I became such a Nashy fanatic back in the early 90s. But uh, listen to recent episodes and you'll understand why. And then uh, there's the Bloody Pit, which is just the branch off from my uh, my blog of the same name, which allows me to cover anything other than Spanish horror, uh, which means that you just never know what exactly is going to pop up. I mean, we may talk about uh, 40s universal horror films. We may talk about uh, an 80s sword and sorcery movie. Uh, 70s science fiction movies, Sherlock Holmes movies. You just absolutely never know with the bloody pit. And then uh, for the past year or so, I've also been participating in Wild Wild Podcasts with my buddy Adrian Smith over in London. We do a podcast that focuses in very specific seasons on different uh, Italian genre cinema. We did a science fiction run. Uh, we've just completed a uh, an Italian crime film run of, of episodes, and we uh, do these little mini episodes in between the big ones. Uh, we did a we, we did uh, a mini a mini series on the uh, the uh, uh, the sex comedies that were uh, takeoffs on the Canterbury Tales and uh, things of that nature in the early seventies in Italy. Uh, <laughs> we could we could not have done a, a full season of those. Um, because I would have gone completely insane, but th- that that's best left to listening to those episodes where, where you hear me 
parsing the various qualities of uh, films that I would have otherwise never watched in my life. And uh, very soon on the Wild Wild Podcast, Wild 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 Podcast is very intriguing. I love it because I don't have to edit it. It's uh, <laughs> that's all Adrian's job. But those are the three podcasts that I uh, that I'm involved with on a regular basis. Nice, nice. That's awesome. All right, folks, so we are continuing our yearly event called 13 Days of Hallowtober. Our theme this year is vampire movies. And today we're going to discuss the film Vampires, that's Vampires with a Y, from 1974. So sit back and get ready for a discussion on a fun cult vampire flick. Class is in session. his car if you need convincing. No, I don't need convincing. I just don't see anything peculiar about it, that's all. telephone in the house. Can you give us a lift? It's not far. Yes. Thanks. Who are you? Where the hell do you come from? I must get away from here. I must get away from here! strange. What? Man, watch your stop. Look. Huh? That's never happened before. Fran and Miriam, female lovers, are shot to death in bed at a rural English country house. Resurrected as vampires, the couple proceed to carry on by luring unsuspecting people to the dilapidated estate where they can feed on their blood. Young couple John and Harriet drive past Fran while traveling through the English countryside. Afterward, John and Harriet decide to camp out their caravan near the country house for several days. Harriet is perturbed by the locale and tells John she saw another woman, Miriam, hiding behind a tree when they passed Fran. That night, during a rainstorm, Harriet sees lights inside the home and is startled by a figure looking into the caravan. John investigates but finds nothing. 
In the morning, a middle-aged man named Ted passes through the area, observing a single-car accident with a dead male driver. Fran again, posing as a hitchhiker, gets a ride from Ted to the house. She invites him inside where the two have passionate sex. In the morning, Ted finds a gash wound on his arm, which he attributes to a broken wine glass. After failing to locate Fran, Ted stops at John and Harriet's parked caravan, where they invite him in for coffee and bandage up his wounds. Ted returns to the house, waiting for Fran's return in his parked car. She returns at dusk, accompanied by Miriam and a young man named Rupert, whom the women have also lured there. That night, after Ted falls asleep, Fran joins Miriam in murdering and feeding on Rupert. After hiding the body, the women shower together. Miriam implores Fran to murder Ted soon, fearing she may become too emotionally invested. Curious about Fran and Miriam, Harriet follows the women the next morning as they walk into the woods and pass through a church graveyard. Meanwhile, Ted departs in his car and stumbles upon another road accident scene, but is startled to see the victim is Rupert. Rattled, Ted returns to the house and inadvertently locks himself in the wine cellar. That night, Fran and Miriam return to the house and find Ted in the cellar. Fran begins feeding on his arm wound as he lies submissively. Miriam enters the room and also begins to feed on Ted's wound, followed by the women having sex as Ted lies beside them. Harriet eventually enters the house and finds both Fran and Miriam sleeping in darkness in the wine cellar. John confronts Harriet and ushers her out of the house, worried they will be cited for trespassing. Ted, who is laying weak with anemia in Fran's bedroom, hears the women depart and return to the house, again with a new suitor, this time a self-assured playboy. They bring him to the cellar where they stab him to death. Meanwhile, Ted garners enough strength to stumble outside to John and Harriet's caravan. John attempts to drive to safety, but is murdered by Fran and Miriam in the car. Upon going to investigate, Harriet is attacked by Fran and Miriam, who drag her into the wine cellar and slit her throat. At dawn, Ted stumbles back to his car in a daze. He is awoken by a realtor who assumed Ted to be a drunkard and orders him to leave. As Ted drives hurriedly away, the realtor approaches the estate with an elderly American couple interested in purchasing it. The realtor comments that the real estate agency has had trouble selling the property as it is believed to be haunted by two women who were murdered there. So before we do anything, um, I just want to point out that Ray Lovelock is not, in fact, in this film whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Rod, what are your first impressions? What were your first impressions of vampires and when did you first see it? Well, before before I give you that, I would say that Ray Lovelock would have made a good substitute for the uh, the wine connoisseur who is uh, one of the uh, one of the vampires' victims there in the in the cellar. Uh, yeah, he, he could have played that role to the hilt. Uh, although the fellow who does it is just fine, but now that you put that image in my head, I can't get it out. Okay, <laughs> the what I guess the way I first came across this movie, uh, I have I've thought a little bit about that because I suspected that you know I almost always want to know how my how first came across a film and i have to admit that it's a little fuzzy i think i either saw it on a bootleg videotape uh sometime in the 90s or and this is a possibility although i can't be sure i may have seen it at a 24-hour movie marathon in columbus ohio because i definitely did see it on the big screen there in the late 90s i just can't be sure if that was a first viewing or not I will say that seeing it in the deep dark of night on a big screen with an incredibly large crowd was uh, certainly instructive in exactly how erotic and disturbing the movie can be. Uh, but I can't be positive whether I'd seen the movie before and this was like a second time through or if that was the first time I saw it and therefore I was sitting there 
with my brain slowly melting, wondering why I, I was both fearful and aroused. <laughs> so um, nowadays, I know why I was fearful and aroused. <laughs> At the time, it would have been a different a different pair of sensations rubbing up against each other, so to speak. But the uh, <laughs> so um, my uh, initial impressions of the film have remained my impressions of it through today. Uh, I think it's an incredibly well done. A beautiful film that seems to that seems to uh, exist merely to both uh, entice and puzzle viewers to a to a to a degree. Uh, it's both erotic. I find it to be in, incredibly uh, arousing and fascinating. It is a, a, a unique. Although since this time, not so much. It's not, it's not so much unique anymore. But at the time, it felt like a very unique. Uh, variation on the, the standard vampire cinema tropes and it's certainly one where um, and I, I love to point this out to people where um, vampires don't need to have fangs there are, def- there are definitely ways to go about getting blood out of a carcass that don't involve biting it and um, this is a I've always thought of this as an exceptional film and one that almost always amongst people who can enjoy the film because there are people who get turned off by its combination of sex and violence um, but those who enjoy it, I think it, it almost always sparks really interesting conversations and questions about, um, shall we say, the, the the order of events that we're being presented with and what certain things may or may not mean. Right. Right. Yeah. And I just want to remind people, too, I forgot to say it before, but um, we do have at the top of the show a uh, spoiler alert because we are probably going to spoil the shit out of this movie. Um, but yeah, I mean, man, opening your film with two hot naked lesbians making out, that, that's a formula for success in my book, I have to say. Oh, uh, yeah. And of course, they've done the, the very smart thing right up front, which is that, that we have two female, we have two female leads who are going to be on screen, you know, for, you know, let's, let's call it 70% of the screen time. And they are very different physical types. Uh, most strikingly, of course, with hair color, but also just, uh, the, you know, the fact that they're, they're, don't get me wrong, absolutely gorgeous, but it's very easy to tell them apart, even if you're only seeing like an arm or, uh, you know, this, their, their, their profile from the back or even, you know, almost any part of them. It's, it's very easy to know which of these two women that you're dealing with. And that's just, uh, you, you do that in casting. It's one of those things that I've learned over the decades of obsessing over films that you have to do up front or you're just confusing your audience. Right, right, exactly. I, I feel like I've I've definitely heard of this film over the years. I was familiar with the title uh, when you and I first talked about doing it, um, So, but I had never seen it. So I watched it shortly after we discussed doing this movie, and um, then I just watched it again yesterday. And, you know, I really enjoyed this film. I mean, first of all, I love the, the films of the early 70s, particularly the, you know, grindhouse horror-type films. Um, and this, after watching it this time around, it just makes me want to see more films like it. So it's, there's just so much to be said there, but this film is, I think the pacing was, was nicely done. Um, it, it went by fast. I mean, it was only an hour and a half, but it, it, it seemed like it was much shorter than it actually was. It, it moves, it moves along. And, and it's, and the weirdest thing about that to me is that although it does it does move along pretty quickly. I mean, you know, event follows event, event follows event, but at the same time, it does give you a, it really effectively gives you a sense of kind of a languor, a kind of sense of, 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 uh, events taking their own time. There, there's this, you know, and a lot of that is simply because we have a, a character 
the uh, the victim who actually uh, stays with the, the, the vampire women over the course of three days. Yeah. Uh, so, and watching him kind of give kind of gives the film the ability to to, to give you a sense of that kind of lazing around of nothing much going on, of not much being accomplished because we're kind of watching certain things through his eyes and seeing how, how he's, you know, unable to marshal his strength to really get away or maybe not just strength, but maybe unable to marshal the desire to leave, you know, to leave the, the premises and not be able to see these women again. And so it's, right. um, it's 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 wild that it gets that across, but that I guess it shouldn't be too much of a shock. The more the more of Jose Larraz's films that you see, the more you realize how beautiful he is at being able to. Well, he's just good at putting beautiful images on screen and to also use those images to create an atmosphere and, a, and, and certain senses of emotional depth that don't you know what you wouldn't necessarily see on paper if you were just like like looking at a, a typed out script of this thing. Right, right. And speaking of Jose Larraz, um, he, he, let's get into the writer and uh, the director and writer and all that and, and cast. Um, he came from Barcelona. I think he did most of his movies, at least in Spain, but he went to England and did a trilogy of films, which includes this one, Vampires, uh, Scream and Die in 73, and another film called Symptoms in 1974. Um, so yeah, you know, this movie uh, definitely pushed the bounds of what the British censors were allowed. And a lot of the reviews I read online were saying how people were surprised at how much he got away with in showing in this movie. It's practically softcore porn. Uh, it's very close. Now, of course we have to take into account that by the time they made this movie, uh, this comes, this comes out in 74 and it was shot, uh, really shot early in that same year. Yeah. So the, the idea is that if you came to this film cold without any knowledge of what was going on in cinema at the time, uh, it, 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 you, you might be a little surprised at the kind of over the top nature of some of the, uh, some of the sex and violence in it. But uh, to be honest, this is, this is a movie that was in some ways treading on some ground that had already been uh, walked over more than a few dozen times. Uh, because the, the the concept of the female vampire, the predatory female vampire, had starting in the late '60s kind of come to the fore, uh, basically because as uh, the the censorship as the censorship leash was taken off of filmmaking in general, uh, especially in the states, but also in other places as well. You could you know you, you could still cross the line and have to be you know slapped back by censor cuts. Right. But the by the time this film comes out. This is far from the first time that uh, female uh, vampires or even lesbian vampires have been presented, have been presented on screen. Yep. And so you even have the venerable hammer films by this time, having produced, uh, have they gotten all three of their female, the three or four. I mean, what you end up with, uh, if you count their Elizabeth Bathory film, Countess Dracula, you end up with maybe four, but you know, vampire lovers, and, um, Countess Dracula and Lust for Vampires, you know, with it, with every title, throwing as much, <laughs> throwing as many salacious terms into the title as possible to get butts on seats. Right. But like I say, this would not have been the first opportunity in cinema in Britain or anywhere else to have seen uh, lesbian female vampires. Uh, you might not have seen them. Don't get me wrong. But um, this was this was treading ground that had already been walked over. It's just doing it in a uh, 
a more audacious and I would say in a lot of cases, a much more interesting way because, uh, and a lot of that does boil down to Jose Laurent. Yeah. Yeah. And it definitely makes me want to go and check out his other movies. Um, he did a bunch in Spain and a bunch of horror movies after this. Uh, he did uh, Dark Doors, Stigma, Black Candles, and Deadly Manor. And there's one that I was surprised that he had directed. I, I saw this particular film uh, at the Riverside Drive-In when we went uh, a year ago, April. So it would be the uh, 2021 event that they had where they play horror movies, you know, four horror movies on Friday and four on Saturday. And it's called Edge of the Axe, which yeah. is a slasher film. And I have to say I was disappointed. I didn't think it was all that good, but... I kind of want to go back and, and revisit it with a, with a different eye, knowing that he directed that movie. Well, I have to say, Edge of the Axe is one of those. I'm a I'm a fan of the the kind of three the kind of trilogy. Uh, not connected to it, but the, the three films that he made uh, in uh, late '80s, where he kind of returned to doing some horror films after having done uh, very different things there for a little while. They're the, exactly the kind of films that, in my youth, I would have turned my nose up at. The, the late 80s, early 90s um, European horror scene is something that I have only in the past few years actually begun to appreciate. And I have to admit that one of one of the moments where I realized that my my uh, attitude was changing toward these movies was uh, my first viewing of Edge of the Axe, was, which was only a few years ago. Um, I can't remember exactly when, but... I came to it with the full knowledge of what it was, you know, when it was shot. And I was just curious because, because it's one of those late, late, late in his career films where he's kind of returning to the horror genre. And I wanted to see, well, this, this is purportedly a slasher film. Let's, let's see what he's done. So I have to admit uh, you might, you might feel differently if you go back and watch it again, because I found myself, I, I, I was curious because it, the film has an, a, a number of actors in it that uh, have a lot of time for who, you know, they only have bit roles, but or or supporting supporting. They're only part of the supporting cast really. Right. But they're ones that would draw me in almost immediately. But my first viewing of edge of the Axe I found to be fascinating and uh, it made me reevaluate my previous rather uh, down thumb attitude toward uh, deadly manner and rest in pieces. <clears throat> the movies made before and after it. And, um, I have to admit that I am now a fan of all three of those movies, and I'm very happy to say that all three of them now have excellent uh, Blu-ray releases, which means that there's a, a chance for other people to kind of either reevaluate them or to uh, come at them for the first time and kind of have the best possible experience with them. And believe me, I understand if you go back and watch Edge of the Axe and Edge of the Axe and uh, and don't like it. I mean, they're films. You're going to like them or you're not going to like them. Right. But at the right. same time. Uh, at the same time, uh, I can easily understand not enjoying those late '80s. There's a different vibe to the films. There's something, there's something so different. And there, I, I keep trying to find exactly what it is that makes them feel so different. Part of it is there. For a long time, I, I played with the idea that they were shot on different kinds of film stock, so they don't look the same. Yeah. And that may be part of it. And some of it is uh, by that time. Uh, the, the industry was working on, you know, much smaller budgets. So they were having to find ways to, to, to accomplish things that uh, uh, in earlier days, they might not have had quite so much of a difficulty doing, but at this point now I'm just babbling. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the thing that I would, one of the things I would suggest that if you do like vampires, I would back up 
to his film Symptoms, which came out roughly the same t- the same year. Uh, and as a matter of fact, in some places, it's my understanding that both Symptoms and Vampires were playing simultaneously. Uh, and, and I I would point to Symptoms. It is um, it's an art house horror film. That's the best way I would put it. There's an excellent Blu-ray of it out there from Mondo Macabro, which will point out to you just how beautiful the film is. There are some similar shots in this movie that kind of echo that kind of uh, sunlight or sunrise through the trees kind of atmosphere uh, that uh, symptoms just wallows in. And it's an absolutely fascinating film. And I, I, I would highly recommend that. Uh, but uh, but I, but to be, to be honest, to one degree or another, I've enjoyed every uh, Jose LaRaz film that I've ever seen, even though I have still to this day not seen all of them. So, uh, and, and there are a couple that I'm probably going to avoid because there's a couple of comedies that he made. And it's just like, I know exactly how that's going to, so <laughs> <I'm not> <laughs> I, know, I know exactly what that's going to, what that's going to do to me. And it's not going to be pleasant. So. Yeah. Yeah. My understanding too, is that he shot some of the stuff he shot uh, for this movie. He also used the same location in symptom in symptoms. I think uh, it's a place called Harefield Grove. So I would assume that's where the mansion is. Um, the, 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 uh, the mansion is, uh, it's, well, the mansion is, what's it called? Oakley court. Right. Uh, Windsor. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's in, it's in Berkshire, uh, Berkshire or Berkshire. I would, I would say Berkshire because I'm a stinking American, but probably Berkshire, <laughs> uh, depending, depending, but it's a place where my God, you know, probably three dozen films have been shot there to one degree or another, including a lot of classic uh hammer films like brides of dracula and curse of frankenstein and stuff like that and it's and when you see it you can understand exactly why i mean it is an astonishing looking place oh yeah and uh you know and, and there's enough room on the grounds to be able to shoot it from different angles to get just whatever you want you can you can make it look like whatever you want it to within the restrictions of just the, the gorgeous edifice of the building it's just an amazing place but um yeah, and, and it is it is one where I think that uh, you have a lot of uh, you have a lot of luck getting gorgeous images on screen just just by shooting there. So yeah, right, right. I wanted to back up uh, briefly here and just mention when I saw when I saw Edge of the Axe at the drive-in a couple of years ago. I, you know, obviously going into it knowing nothing about the film, I thought it was a Canadian-made film. I have to say, oh, wow, I had really? no idea that it was Spanish. Yeah. <laughs> well, they do fake the uh, Southern California setting very effectively to the point where for a long time until uh, I was able to get more information on it, I actually wondered if they filmed the entire movie in California or not somewhere in Northern California. But it turns out that of course, that, no, the vast majority of it was shot in Spain, but the, um, uh, the you know, they, 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 they came over and shot just enough uh, footage in the, uh, uh, you know, exterior footage to be able to put in the movie to give you the impression that the whole thing takes place in, in uh, Northern California. So yeah, believe me, I can understand because, you know, it was, it was still at that point in time, an almost necessity yeah. to, to uh, try to fool an audience into thinking this movie was taking place really, really where we tell you it's taking place, even though it certainly is not. So. Right. <laughs> you know, one thing I read about vampires too, I was surprised and I didn't really get a chance to look deep into it, but I'm curious Apparently, it was remade in Spain by uh, Victor Matalano in 2015, and it had people like, you know, Lone Fleming, May Heatherly, and Caroline Monroe in it. So I'm kind of curious to check that out and see what they did with it. I have still never seen that. Um, 
I've heard very mixed things about it. And there's a, don't get me wrong. If it were sitting here next to me, then yeah, sometime in the next couple of days, I would probably finally watch it, but I still, I have not sought it out because I do know that it's, you know, no matter what, I'm probably, I'm probably, although I am the, the, the audience that's perfect to sit down and, and want to see it. Yeah. There's a part of me that realizes that I, I'm, I'm not going to enjoy it in the same way. So I've got kind of been putting it off. It's like, I will eventually watch it, but the fact that it's been out for seven years now and I haven't watched it yet, and I've been aware of it since before it came out, it probably tells you that I'm not, you know, I'm not just striving, yeah. <laughs> begging, looking, I, it may, it, I may enjoy the hell out of it. Who knows? But I just, I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of remakes to begin with, but yeah, you know, someday if it comes, like you said, if it comes across my desk, I'll watch it. the The writer is credited as being uh, Laraz's wife, Diana Dobney. However, what I found out was that he there was something in England they had certain criteria that you had to meet. So he basically just put her name on as the writer, but um, Laraz was the one that actually wrote this movie. Have, do you know anything about that? Uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, depending on who you talk to. Uh, the reason the screenplay has someone else's name on it uh, either is down to what LaRoz says, which is that he he uh, felt that it would probably be a bad idea to have his name both as the writer and the director, which, you know, maybe. But at the same time, uh, part of it also may be that um, to you know, the, the desire to kind of spread the, spread credit around. And um, I, do, I don't know if there might have been an eye toward uh, giving his wife some kind of screenplay credit because then maybe if there's more money later on, <laughs> both of them can profit <laughs> off this thing. I have no idea if that was even in the cards, but right. um, uh, I, w- I, w- I will say that it, it, it is such a, a classic Mirage screenplay. Uh, purportedly it was shot. I mean, it was, it was, it was written in just about five days and uh-huh. uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, like I say, I'm not sure about the, the level of modesty that he, he claims for wanting to put his wife's name on it. But at the same time, the uh, I think it's helped along by the fact that he's very much working in the same vein of the film he'd already shot, Symptoms. This feels a lot like that movie, only with vampires, right? And and like you know, loads of sex. <laughs> but the uh, but the um, the uh, the this the the script. This this would not be the first time I've ever heard about where you know essentially a producer comes to comes to someone and says look i'm really i really want to work with you if you've got a if you've got something that you want to do uh, present it to me and we'll we'll see what we can do about bringing you know bringing the money together and putting and putting something putting a production together um, you know under those under those uh, those restrictions uh, a lot of people get really creative really fast right and uh, this this appears to be one of those times right right so let's get into the cast a little bit. Of course, we have Marianne Morris, who played Fran. Apparently, she had an uncredited role as a topless girl in uh, the film Corruption with Peter Cushing, which I really like that movie, so now I have another excuse to go and watch it again. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm sure you did. <laughs> but I couldn't find too much beyond this, except she was in an uh, uncredited role um, as being on a, a, or appearing on a billboard in the movie Queen Kong, which is one I've, I've sort of avoided. I <laughs> may have to check that out. <laughs> Uh, yeah, the, I've seen Queen Kong, and, and believe me, you're uh, uh, you're probably right for avoiding it because let's just be blunt it's uh, it's exactly what you what you see on the box. It right. is a, a ridiculous, over the top, no no uh, no uh, uh, no questions asked, silliness, 
uh, believe me, it, it has it has its own. Yes, I yes I have seen it. <laughs> it has its own charms, but those charms are. Uh, boy, do you have to set aside a lot of uh, modern thought processes to enjoy the level of humor and the types of humorous things within it? Because of course, anything gender flipped re- revolving around, uh, shall we say, a giant ape in love with a small human is going to go into weird places pretty quick. <laughs> That's hilarious. Oh, and I was kind of disappointed to see that she didn't have a bigger career than this because she was really good in this. Um, you know, she she appeared in a softcore magazine called Mayfair, and she was in a few sex comedies like uh, Love Box and Percy's Progress. Um, so I, you know, I'm surprised that she didn't. You know, she wasn't like another Caroline Monroe or one of those actresses. You know, those she's just like one of the hammer. She could have been a Hammer Girl very easily. Yeah, I think unfortunately her screen career started just a few years too late for that to happen because I think you know by that time Hammer's winding down and th- those kinds of roles, th- the kinds of roles that a film of this type would have uh, probably garnered her. <clears throat> you know, they're just they're not really there anymore to a large degree. The the British horror, uh, you know, production cinema, the, 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 it, it's it's winding down to the point where there's probably not going to be a whole lot of offers. Plus, I think that. Um, you're right. I mean, she did. She was a model first. Both both lead actors, both of the vampire ladies, were both models before they uh, went in, went in front of cameras for film, and uh, and of course, their beauty is is the reason that they were cast in the first place. I should point out that uh, both both women were also dubbed, you know, for, for for various reasons. But you know, one of them was definitely cited by Laraz as being a way to improve their performance in a certain way, and I can see that. But I have to admit that until I was told that they had been dubbed by other people, I was unaware completely. Um, very effective dubbing in that respect, and I have to say that the. Uh, the physical performances, not just him, not trying to be snide here. I'm not talking about just the nudity, but I do think <laughs> that you're right. I think both of them are very good, especially, uh, uh, especially Mary, uh, Marian Morris. I think she's very good at uh, physically, physically and facially getting across uh, a lot of nuance and some very interesting ideas uh, on screen. And it really is kind of a shame that she did not have a larger career after this. She went into, you know, she, she went into uh, business and you know, made a success in a completely different field of endeavor after this. And uh, these days you can see interviews with her just in the past couple of years talking about this movie. And it's, you know, she has very fond memories of, of what she did while in the, the modeling and movie industry, but um, also does not seem to be too, uh, too worked up about the fact that she, you know, she made her life in a different way. Right. Right. Um, now, Miriam is played by, and I'm probably going to butcher this name, but I'll give it a shot, Anoka Zubinska. Is that how you'd say it? Anoka Yeah, yeah. I think that basically, I think you're, you're as close as I would ever get. I'm well known for, <laughs> for mispronouncing names that, that put too many consonants in too many spots. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I think you're right. She was, she's, she's the blonde, and she's an absolutely gorgeous, gorgeous woman. She, uh, I think her... I think her father was Polish. And so she has a very different look. And of course, that's one of the reasons why she was cast. Um, she, you know, Playmate of the Month and Playboy magazine and things of that nature. And just a, a gorgeous, gorgeous woman. Uh, she's had a little bit of a longer career in, in, in film and television, although there are huge gaps where you see that she's, she's either doing something completely different 
and being lured back into getting on screen for, you know, a, a shot in a, in a TV series or not. But by 84, she kind of, kind of tapped out and, uh, which once again, I think is a shame. I, I do feel that she's probably the weaker of the two as far as being an on-screen presence, but I think that there's a reason for that as well, which is that's, you know, you cast her because she is more petite and uh, slighter and therefore presents, uh, she presents as less of a threat, which is the wrong idea to get as the movie plays out. Right, right. And I think in, in the relationship, uh, she's the more sensible one uh, of the two. Yeah. You know, she's looking out for them for the daylight. You know, she's kind of like the protector, whereas um, uh, Fran is the one who's just sort of, you know, doesn't care. She just floats with the wind and does whatever she feels. You know. Well, and that is one of the that, that is one of the the wonderful questions that people who enjoy this movie will often talk about after the fact, where they're just when, when you start discussing this movie is what is it about this one guy who keeps. You know, that, that essentially keeps uh, Mar- Mar- Marianne's character, Miriam. Uh, no, 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 no. Anulka is uh, Mar- Miriam. My, my apologies. What is it about this one guy that has her keep him around and for, for three days? Is she really, you know, is Ted really that enticing a guy? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like, I, I, I I don't want I don't want to sound like a like a dweeb, but I you know I'm pretty sure that he looks exactly like the kind of guy. Maybe it's because he's he's older than the other victims we see. Oh, you know, he's more mature, more man of the world, some more someone who seems to be more interesting, possibly because he's lived a few more years and therefore seems like he would have more to present as a as a I don't know as a kind of talking companion at the very least. But at the same time, it is that very, um, it is the very nature of keeping him around, which, you know, Anulka's character, Miriam, is warning her about pretty regularly. You know, don't, you know, you're playing, she says you're playing a dangerous game by keeping this guy around. Right. And uh, boy, does that turn out to be true. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, speaking of Ted, he was played by Murray Brown, who I was surprised to find out. I, I guess I haven't seen this movie probably since it first aired. Uh, he was Jonathan Harker in the Dan Curtis TV film Dracula in 74. So, I, yeah, I, you know, and you mentioned her, um, Miriam, I'm sorry, um, Fran's um, physical nuance and being able to express things without words. He did the same thing. There were several scenes of him. You know, you just knew what was going on in his head without him uh-huh. saying anything. Well, the the uh, I'm not I'm not sure if anybody's ever done this, but I do think that if you uh, that the the dialogue in this movie really would only take up about um, you know even double spaced. I think probably about five pages <laughs> because this is not a film that that rests on the dialogue. The dialogue is there to uh, enhance the mysterious nature of things that are going on and to impart bits of information that are necessary to make everything else seem more mysterious and interesting, but it is not getting across copious amounts of information. We're not talking about a movie that's spelling out, spelling out its mysteries or spelling out its characters in ways beyond the, uh, the most simple and obvious. And at the same time, I don't want to give the sense that I think that this movie doesn't color in the lines of its characters. I think that um, much like any good movie, a lot of that is done in the casting in the first place. And I think that the, um, for instance, I, I, I love the, uh, the, the, the two, the, the married couple who are camping on the, you know, on the grounds 
for a for a little vacation to get some you know painting and uh, she's a painter and he he he's a fisher and they just enjoy, they're just enjoying a few days out in the countryside. I felt those two characters were incredibly well rounded, and yet it, you know they're they're sketched in brilliantly the way that cinema can in ways that just give you a sense of what the relationship is like very effectively. And the the two actors are very good at getting across this kind of stuff. And of course, they're they're two of the more accomplished actors in the piece. And so I, you know, you you cast smartly and you end up with that kind of thing. But the uh, the fact that the guy who plays Ted, Murray Brown, I honestly thought he had had a longer career than he did. But by by like seventy seven seventy eight, he's he's done. Right. He's he's out. And. I was really shocked. I thought I, I honestly had never looked into his career before. And I thought I was going to look his career up and, and find, you know, you know, 175 roles. And this is just not true. Yeah. Yeah. I was surprised that, about that too. Uh, Cause I, I'm watching it going, I, I know I've probably seen him at least in a, a British comedy or doctor who or something. And yeah, you know, really the only thing I found was the new Avengers, um, which uh, Anulka was also in an episode of, but uh, the couple you mentioned are John and Harriet, and they're played by Brian Deacon and Sally Faulkner. I, I have to say, uh, he Brian reminds me of Davy Jones, <laughs> sort of like the poor man's Davy Jones. <laughs> uh, I can kind of see that, um, but at the same time, you know, he had a pretty he had a pretty hefty career. Uh, it's kind of hard to kind of hard to argue with uh, him having a certain level of success that you know. Doesn't it doesn't surprise me when you see his uh, his performance here? He's one of those guys. I mean, he he came to this with a fair amount of experience. He'd been making television, especially since uh, like three years before this, and you can kind of see that he 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 looks and feels like a smart, well trained actor who knows how to do what he's doing, what he's being asked to do. Right, right, and and it was good. You know, you knew right away. You know what their dynamic was. Mm -hmm. You know, and and Harriet, of course, like I said, was played by Sally Faulkner. I found out she played Isabel in um, it was a Doctor Who story with the second Doctor called The Invasion, which was the one that involved the Cybermen. I don't know if it was, I don't think it was the first appearance because I think the first Doctor encountered the Cybermen. But um, she said that you know making this movie was unpleasant. She thought Laraz was disrespectful to her and to um, Brian. And um, she said, "She said, I have this quote here. She goes, it was not that we were seeking star treatment, but Jose was very single-minded and not supportive. He was particularly critical of me. So I thought that was yeah, interesting. Yeah, and, and I think that, uh, don't, don't get me wrong, the, uh, there seems to be an even split, not just on this film, but in most of the movies that uh, LaRoz made where some people absolutely loved LaRoz and got along with him famously, and others felt that he was far too interested in getting the visuals on screen and not paying nearly enough attention to actors and their needs to get things on screen in a way that, you know, he, he wasn't making their job easier. So the sense that I've always gotten is that uh, LaRoz is one of those, one of those filmmakers who is expecting the actors to do their job without him having to, you know, fill in the gaps for them. And that doesn't necessarily always work out well. Um, which, hey, I can understand. Different actors need different uh, need different levels of director involvement, and when those things disconnect, yeah, it's not gonna it's not gonna go well. But the uh, the, the the fact that there, there, even on this film, there seems to be kind of a split between the actors and their and their feelings about Laraz. I mean, the two actresses who play the uh, 
the the vampires feel uh, you know feel like they 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 love working with him and they love being around him and, and they seem to have connected. Part of that may be that uh, like Marianne Morris uh, spoke French fluently and that was uh, Laraz's second language and so they could speak in French very and very effectively communicate. Where if you've ever heard Laraz speak English, you do know that it was certainly a second, possibly a third, maybe even a fourth language for him. And there's uh, huh. there's this. Uh, Difficulty sometimes, especially uh, early on when he's making films, of getting across ideas to someone if they, you know, if he's having communicated in English necessarily. Yeah. Not that he couldn't speak the language, but uh, you know, you, you you can get hung up trying to dis- trying to describe things when you can't remember, you know, or don't even know the necessary English word to impart an idea to someone, and then you start to get frustrated, and you just, you know, you start. He, he, he's, he's, he, there are more than a few stories where the producer, uh, the producer who started this whole thing, this whole ball rolling had to, uh, walk speci- specifically walk Laraz a couple of times around that, uh, that large building, that large, <laughs> that large <laughs> castle like building to have him cool off because he was getting either pissed off with the cinematographer or pissed off with the way things were going. And so the hot-tempered Spaniard is certainly something that Baraz uh, seems to have been at times. Right, right. <laughs> but Sally, uh, Miss Faulkner, holy crap, what uh, what an actress. And a hell of a career, and uh, I, th- I thought it was hilarious. Um, <laughs> you know, years after the fact, of course, she's more than willing to talk about this movie. And uh, one of the things that she, she, uh, she, she let on is that... Uh, she had um, she had just given birth to her first child uh, a few huh. months before this. Wow! Uh, not, yeah, not too long before this at all. And uh, the um, <laughs> the um, she was having to um, okay. So she was still breastfeeding the, the her her daughter, and the uh, <laughs> <laughs> so originally the script. Was never the, the script never had a, a, a lovemaking scene between Miss Faulkner and Brian Deacon, uh, you know the the married couple in the camper. There was that was not in the script. But while they were making the movie, they decided that it was decided that that was something they needed to put in there just to just to get the two of them. You know, essentially, my guess is that would have been felt that considering some of the uh, the dialogue between the two of them, maybe by by showing them as actually, you know, you know, having sex together that we show that the, the, this really is a loving relationship instead of one where the, the husband is always having to, you know, is always essentially doubting the, his wife to some degree when she's reporting to him that she's seen something that he doesn't quite believe was there. And so they throw this in there and, and uh, the, the quote from her uh, was something along the lines of, okay, okay, we'll do this scene. Not a problem. We'll do this much. She wasn't, she wasn't worried about getting naked in front of the camera. Not a big deal. And she, she said it was interesting. She says, she says, it's very easy to forget that there's a camera there and that it's forever. So you kind of get into it, <laughs> which would not have seemed like, would not have seemed normal to me, but apparently that's true. But as I said, she just had a, a baby a few weeks beforehand. And one of the things that, that happened is uh, she, she laughs when she recounts this, she said she'd been uh, she, because of the way they were shooting, she would uh, sometimes miss a feeding time with her daughter. And uh, so they get it, they get into bed to do this scene. And uh, she said, I, I get into bed with poor Brian and I'd spurt milk all over him. 
<laughs> which I thought was the fact that this is decades later and she's willing to tell that tale. Yeah. I was like, oh, thank God, that's hilarious because that had to be one of those things that was <laughs> either embarrassing or hilarious in the moment. But, that's wicked uh, funny. What, you know, what, what a trooper. You know, she's like, okay, okay, we'll do this. <laughs> and huh, I really, I really should have gone and fed the baby because this is, this is something we're going to have to shoot around. Oh my God, that's a riot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So then we have uh, Michael Byrne, who plays the playboy, sort of a, a wine connoisseur in this yeah. movie. And he was in a shit ton of stuff. I mean, he was in, I, in fact, now that I think about it, I can see his face in the Nazi uniform. He was in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Um, he was also in Gangs of New York and Tomorrow Never Dies. I mean, this guy's had a long career. Very long career. And he's one of those guys who, unfortunately, you know, I, I just, I've ne- because he's never been, you know, a movie star, I didn't take notice of him at all. It was more than a little surprised yeah. to see that his career has, you know, stretched well into the 21st century. So, yeah. Yeah. That was interesting. Um, and the only other person that I wanted to pick out of the cast, and, and maybe you have more, um, was Bessie Love, who plays the American lady at the very end. There's this, you know, elderly American couple. Mm-hmm. Uh, man, her career started in 1915. She was a, a, a silent film superstar. And, but... You know, she was in, of course, The Lost World, which was a, a classic 1925 uh, dinosaur movie. But she was also in films like Children of the Damned and The Hunger in 83. So, I mean, talk about a long career. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. Uh, I would point out one other actor uh, that that I think uh, is worth talking about just a little bit. Not because he had a very long career or because of anything else other than the fact that he, uh, he, he really only, uh, I mean, this was like, one of his very last on-screen performances. And I don't have a whole lot of information on him, but he was a favorite of Jose LaRaz. He had been in uh, Whirlpool, his first film for him, and Deviation. Uh, he, he'd been in Whirlpool, Deviation, uh, The House That Vanished, and then this. And uh, he's, the bl- he's the blonde victim of the vampires. Um, oh, Rupert? Yeah, Rupert. And um, like I say, he's just one of those guys who... Uh, because I've seen Whirlpool, Deviation, The House of Vanished, and Vampires, uh, I immediately thought, oh, this guy had you know, like a super long career, yada, yada, yada. It's like, no, I mean, you know, his first screen appearance was in 58 as a very, very young kid. And then he's in a couple of things throughout the 60s, some television, and really, Vampires is almost the last thing he did. I mean, this was really kind of his is his curtain on, on that particular type of career. And we should point out to the listeners, the actor's name is Carl Lanchberry. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, I did not say his name. Carl Lanchberry, pardon me. That's fine, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting and fascinating when you so, sort of dive into the actors of these movies that we always cover um, and, and to see where their career was and people you thought had a long career had a short career and people you thought had a short career had a long career. It's, it's really fascinating. Yeah, and there, there seems to be, uh, you know, what, using one film as a yardstick will tell you almost nothing. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah, so like I said, this movie opens up with the two lesbian lovers, and this guy just comes into the room and shoots them dead. Mm-hmm. It's a plot thread that never goes anywhere. We never find out who, who did that, you know, why. <laughs> you think it was, like I when I first watched it, I thought it was setting it up like a giallo. And it was going to be some kind of a murder mystery or something. And I, it just went off in a completely different direction. I mean, what did you think when you first watched it? Okay, first viewing, I got to admit, first viewing, 
I, I probably, especially on even like second viewing, I probably just completely forgot about the scene where we see the two women get killed. Uh, because <laughs> boy, does this movie distract you for the next, you know, like 85 minutes. Right. So, <laughs> but I have to say that that scene, you know, that opening the movie that way is one of the things that causes the most discussion amongst connoisseurs of this particular film. Uh, the, the desire to figure out uh, what's going on there, why that starts the movie and as a matter of fact, I, w- I would say that, you know, the first two scenes in the movie, which truly are mysterious as hell, the more you think about it, the more it opens up, the more you realize, okay, they have to be connected. Because, of course, yes, the movie opens with uh, us seeing the two female women, the, the, um, the two female women. That's right, Rod. Let's let's go to Western <laughs> Redundancy Theater. Uh, but the uh, the uh, we see we see them killed. We see them shot and, and killed. They're in bed together. By an unknown assailant. Okay. Then the next sequence we have is we see, uh, we see Ted who is traveling, you know, from someplace to someplace somewhere in England. And he stops at a, at a uh, hotel and checks in. And uh, an older gentleman who is a longtime employee there is convinced that he has seen Ted there before. And Ted is insistent that he has never been to the place. Before. Right. But the older man is very, very thoughtfully. He's like, okay, well, I guess I'm wrong, but He's pretty sure he's seen the guy there before. And he emphasizes that it was years ago yeah. and that he, he seems to look the same. So those two scenes opening the picture immediately tell you, okay, wait a minute. There's, there's something that this movie is going to tell me at the end to, uh, to piece these things together. And that would be the wrong assumption, right? <laughs> You are wrong, sir. <laughs> your cinematic instincts of mystery thrillers have totally destroyed your ability to even think about this in a, in a way that is going to help. So <laughs> the joy is talking about why these scenes are in the movie, what these are all about. And it's like, go, don't get me wrong. Okay. The movie is, you, you can just watch the movie on the surface and just think that it's hysterical that they, that they never uh, like clean up or explain those two opening sequences of the movie. Right. And, and, and just think that it's silly and it's a dumb movie and whatever, and you can dismiss it and move forward. Cool. Not a problem. I get it. Right. But if you're a, a, a cinema crazed, just lunatic like myself, or even moderately close to that, then what's going to immediately start piecing through your brain is remembering how the movie does end with that dialogue as the house is being shown to that American couple. And we once again reference the two women who supposedly haunt the place who were killed right. there. Right. So of course this has sparked so much debate over the years. So many, uh, so many interesting conversations and I'm not here to tell anybody how they should interpret those odder aspects, those more mysterious aspects of the film, because there is a, a way to look at it that Jose Larraz has talked about over time. And then there are, are ways to talk about it. And most of them are kind of connected to, to how he lays this stuff out or what he says about what he was thinking about when he made this. But at the same time, you can get into a position where, and, and this is wonderful. There's this, uh, there's this writer named John Kitley, who's a, who's a buddy of mine and who, who has done a lot of writing on films of this type over the years. And uh, he still has his, uh, he still has his uh, blog, Kit, uh, Kitley's Crypt, up and running. And uh, years ago, 
uh, he wrote a, a lengthy piece about this movie where he even put together in his mind the kind of the the order in which the scenes that were being shown in the movie would be best to be thought of if you were trying to go through the film in a linear fashion. And he makes a lot of sense with what he's saying, even though I would, you know, be, you know, being the contrarian that I am, I do, I would still argue with a couple of things here, there, and yon, but his way of laying out the events in the film in a linear way actually makes sense huh. and adds to part of the, the, the joy of this movie for me, which is to just discuss why, you know, why is it, why is it like it is? Why are we looking at this in a way? Because it's not as if, you know, like I say, it's possible for you to feel that it just you know makes the film silly or stupid or whatever. But depending on how you look at it, there are ways to look at this movie to interpret why we're being shown these things and why, you know, because what you're expecting if you're presented with something mysterious that you don't understand the beginning of a story is that the end of the story is, is going to tell you what to think of those pieces at the beginning. And I think that it does. It's just really, really subtle. Uh, and the uh, the way John, I'll just I'll point people to uh, Kitley's crypt. Uh, he did a post on this particular film back in 2016, where he lays out the sequence of events that he thinks the, the, the things happen in, uh, as opposed to the way the movie presents them. And he's pretty logical about it. And I have to say, it does make a, a nice a nice type of sense. But at the same time, why spoil it by just deciding that that's the way it has to be? You know, it's like ah. Uh, we can sit and debate this. It's just one of those things. But I will say this. I think, uh, and a lot of people agree, I think the person who murders the two women in bed is right. Ted. I think he is, that he is the man who shot them uh, for whatever reason. I think it's Ted who kills them, and that that is what the movie is very obliquely communicating uh, as things go by. And uh, I think that you don't have to think that. And I think that you don't even have to think about it at all to to enjoy the movie in different right. ways. But I do think that it's great that you do get the chance to, to kind of feel around in that that mysterious area that the film presents to uh, to kind of enjoy yourself and even in an even different way. And uh, so keep your pants on. people. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny because it wasn't I mean, I had noticed the too the um, the scene about the the guy at the hotel that recognized him from years prior. And I, mm -hmm. it wasn't until I heard you say both scenes out loud that made me think the same thing, that maybe Ted was the one that shot them years ago. And then he, for whatever reason, and then for whatever reason, he came back to just kind of check things out and, you know, see if anything had come about because of it. But because then when you think further on it, and maybe I'm diving too deep into this, you know, because I've seen a lot of reviews online talking about how this is sort of a revenge film where these these women are taking revenge against males because they were killed by a man. And he's pretty much a prisoner through the entire film, especially the more blood they drain from him, the weaker he gets. He can't leave. Uh -huh. And so maybe, you know, yeah, based on what you were just saying, it, it could very well be that he somehow foolishly wandered back into the place and was caught in a trap and this was his punishment for killing them at the beginning and maybe they aren't necessarily vampires because they don't have fangs the only thing we know is that they kind of have an aversion to sunlight even though once in a while they walk around in it um but you know it this could very well be that that's what that is it's just it's just you know cleverly hidden in the script because it's not super important to the story well, that and it, 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 you could very easily see, depending on how you lay out the events of this movie, 
you could very easily see the um, the women as not actually being vampires, right? As as women who just have I don't know a, a blood fetish or a, a, some kind of weird sexual attraction to that kind of that kind of activity. It's not just the absence of fangs. Uh, you know, we don't ever see them in a. There are there aren't a series of events in the movie that you can point to and say, okay, they're definitely vampires. In other words, we we never see you know sunlight striking their flesh, you know, smoke coming off of it. Right. Uh, we never actually see where they might have you know wh- where they're going when they run across the cemetery every uh, every morning. You know, we don't see what their regular resting place is. We just see that place where they, uh, we just see them in the cellar, sleeping in the cellar. Um, that one time that they don't get away from the house fast enough. Uh, and all of these things could just, you know, you could push them off as simply the idea, the idea of two people who have some kind of weird uh, desire to be vampires or a, a mental aberration that makes them feel that they are vampires and they're acting these kinds of things out. And so the movie, it it kind of strides an interesting little tightrope there where you can see them just as, you know, supernatural creatures, you know, bloodthirsty vampires or as really sick individuals who, for whatever reason, are enacting these sexual fantasies in a way that, uh, you know, that works for them and, uh, let's be blunt, really doesn't work for anybody else. Right. <laughs> uh, the, but but that's one of the, once again, another one of those wonderful things that you can talk about when you're discussing this movie, which is the idea of what are we actually seeing? And I'm not saying, you know, you interpret any of the events on there as not actually having happened. I'm just saying, how do you interpret those events and what they actually mean? Right. Right. And it's funny because Laraz said, uh, he's quoted as saying, I imagine my vampires turn almost to cannibalism to eat somebody, to take the blood from anywhere, no matter if it's on the arm or on the balls. <laughs> yes. Well, believe me, LaRoz was never one to uh, to not use all of the English words that he did. Right. <laughs> he's oh, always man. a very, very, very funny guy. And he's one of those. You can see how. It's very easy in inter- any interview you've ever seen with him. It was, incre- it was it's, it's it's easy to see how he could so easily charm people if he wanted to. Right, right. You know, and he does a lot of great camera work. Like, there's obviously a, a, an entertaining scene where the two women are showering and you know having sexy time, and uh, the I, it, for a split second because there's this handheld camera moment where you think it could be the point of view of somebody else, and it's not. It's just the camera looking through this um it's like a decorative wall that has uh, has holes in it but it's not you know I can't describe it I don't know if you can but we're peering through these holes in the wall at the women and it gives it this voyeuristic feel to yes, the scene exactly which I think is I think that's purposeful because yeah one thing you should remember is that for a long number of years Jose Larraz was a comic book artist he was a penciler and artist uh, working in the comic book field. And so his visual sense stems from that kind of thing. So he knew exactly what he was doing every time he placed the camera. In other words, that feeling of being a voyeur as we're watching them in that shower, that's intentional. Uh, that, that, that's a, that, that's a, uh, a, a choice made to start making the audience a little uncomfortable about the fact that we are watching two women in the shower. Right. Uh, not just what they're doing, but the fact that we're doing it at all. And the uh, 
the joy the, the the joys of this is that the more you know about his intentionality in this. Well, one thing I will say, when I learned that he was a was a comic book artist for years, as a matter of fact, that was like the first career he had major success in. He had he he had almost like three different careers uh, across the span of his life. The the comic book stuff. As soon as you know he was an artist of that of that caliber, you're like ah, ten to one. This is a guy who did his own like storyboards and things like that. And then you find out that for the most part, no, he would refuse to do storyboards. He wouldn't do them because he would have the ideas and the images in his head. And he didn't want to he didn't want to bog down the production or the actors or even the cinematographer or camera operators with the these ideas in case they found something better while they were shooting. Huh. So, we, you know, we're not we're not going to you know, we're not going to lock ourselves into these things. He has all these images and ideas in his head, but it's not, it's not something that he's going to lock himself into. Because, you know, on the day, suddenly maybe the sunlight is in an interesting, interesting position and we're going to reset and do it a different way. So that is, you know, that's exactly the how I would expect. That's exactly how I would expect that, uh, an artist who's now turned into a filmmaker to, to come to things like that. But, of course, that is one of the areas that caused him more than a few problems with Harry Waxman, the director of photography on this film, where they, they would argue more than a few times about uh, what they were trying to do. And uh, let's just say their personalities... Uh, if it wasn't for the producer of the film who was there every day, all the time, because this was such a, a low-budget production, if it wasn't for the producer there, the, this film may never have gotten completed because the two of them might have come to blows. <laughs> That's funny. Oh, man. So um, I had a question about... Uh, where is it? There's a scene where... Uh, um, uh, what's his name? Ted wakes up in the bed and Miriam's lying next to him after they've, you know, had a night of uh, feral sex, if you will. Yeah. And um, she's just lying there with her with her eyes open, but she's not responding. What do you make of that scene? OK, LaRaz says that that actually happened to him in real life with some woman that he was in. A, he was in a relationship with years before where this woman, if the room was dark enough, apparently she would sleep and her eyes would pop open and she was still asleep. Huh? And this, this is something that he remembered from those years before, from, from years before that just really creeped him the hell out. <laughs> and so he thought, <laughs> aha, this would be perfect. I will throw this in here. And this will be one of those weird little things where you're not sure exactly what you're seeing because uh, he, he insists that he had seen this himself in real life with the woman who, you know, definitely wasn't a vampire. So it's one of those, one, another one of those, tightrope walking things where you can easily interpret that as this being some kind of supernatural creature who, you know, how, how else can this be seen? But he's like, no, 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 this is something I, I, I saw in, in real life. And that's why I put it in there. Not, you know, don't get me wrong. Laraz was more than willing to embellish reality, but at the same time, it's creepy as hell. But if you're just interpreting it from what he says, once again, it's it could be one thing or it could be the other. Right. Of course, the, the one supernatural thing or maybe supernatural thing in the movie, once again, completely questionable, right? Yeah. Is the clocks stopping. Yes. I was going to bring yeah. that up. The watches, the, the different people's watches and clocks seem to stop uh, in this, in this house. If you're there long enough. And uh, once again, this, this is back in the, the days of, you know, wind up wristwatches. So who knows? Right. Right. But, it, you know, that's what that's that's definitely an element in the story that you could point to and say, OK, there's definitely something super, supernatural going on here. This is this is what we're being presented with definitely falls on that, on that side of the line. But at the same time, it's like, does it really? I mean, because 
who knows? Right, right. So, yeah, I had another question in this movie where uh, Ted wakes up and, you know, Fran's not there because it's daytime, and he finds the slice on his arm, which is a real deep gash, and, but there's no blood to it, and it's, it isn't until a little while later that he notices blood on the sheet, and then when he puts mm-hmm. his shirt on, there's blood on the shirt. Why do you think that is? You know, is it just the fanboy in me saying, well, maybe because she's supernatural, her saliva, like, healed him up a little bit, or... Well, yeah, it does look like the the gash is crusted over enough to keep him from you know from bleeding out and dying from it. And uh, do, do you mean like how how would it have closed up when it looks so hideous? Well, it, it's just not bleeding. You would imagine oh, if you yeah, got a yeah. gash like this, you'd, you'd be bleeding all over the place. Well, I mean, you know, I having you know having recently adopted a cat, I can tell you that I'm very <laughs> very well acquainted with the the number and varied depths of different cuts made by let's just say cat claws just you know <laughs> just because that's my most recent it, it, it just it, it that that has never struck me as anything in particular uh you know particularly odd or even that has never really struck me as something that would need to be ruled ruled in the supernatural area um mainly because it just it, it's carried off effectively within the film and the, the looks we get at the wound it does appear as if you know it's like scabbed over yeah, and we don't see the process by which these these women stop their feeding process. So, you know, I, I you know, who who the hell knows? Uh, but at the same time, uh, I do like the idea that uh, you know, as he's as he starts to move around, it starts to bleed a little bit more, which is of course completely in keeping with you know something that has has recently scabbed over. I like I say, it doesn't it doesn't break the reality or change my decision on whether or not this is really you know this is a supernatural tale or not. But uh, yeah, it doesn't look like a hideous, hideous freaking cut. <laughs> but the I think that the reason it's there and kind of uh, really emphasized visually within uh, within the structure of the story we're being told is that he's the only one that these women cut but don't stab. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, and I think that that is that is there to you know, as, as a, as a visual, they don't ever draw attention to it. He never, you know, the, nope, there's never anybody in a position to point out verbally that, you know, Oh, well, this is interesting because he's been, you know, he's been, uh, kept alive. And the, the one thing that's definitely going to keep you alive is if they don't stab you the way they stab all their other. Right. <laughs> or even poor Harriet, they like, they strip her nude and then slice her throat. Yeah. Which was just brutal. I mean, there's a lot of brutal scenes in this movie. Um, but there was another one I had a question about where uh, Harriet's outside painting the um, the house. Like, she's painting a picture of the house. And, uh, you know, uh, Fran and Miriam come up to her. First of all, it's daylight, so I thought that was odd. Um, but then uh, Fran says to her, I always knew we'd find each other. And then she puts her thumb on her forehead as if to make some kind of symbol. And she goes, by this sign, I'll recognize you. What was that all about? <laughs> that is that is the one thing I can't make fit into any particular theory or anything other than I, the the most surface thing is okay if we're talking something supernatural here, then one would have to suspect that this particular vampire uh, did feel a pull toward her. In other words, this would, this woman might, ha- might be someone that she would be willing to turn instead of murder, you know, right. instead of drain, instead of drain. Uh, and the fact that 
she is the only female that we see them attack, right? Yeah. Uh, all the other victims are male. Uh, there is a there is a question that comes to my mind about whether or not they treat the women differently, and maybe the maybe this is an indication that if things had gone well, or maybe they do go well, we're just not seeing it until later on. Right, right. Uh, she will become like the third, and it will be a trio of women doing this together. Uh, that is that that's that's something the film does not answer. Doesn't we don't you know it has it ends at a point where that is not a question that we're given the opportunity to learn, and um, although you know like I say I would be curious to find out if you know the only body that turns up on the side the, the side of the road in a faked car crash is her husband and not her. Right, right. Oh, that's a good point, and you know there's a lot of little odd touches to this movie, like you know talk because i was kind of um thrown at the end when you see a realtor selling trying to sell the house to this couple because the the women kept making reference to someone that owned it like i think they made reference to uh it, the the wine cellar belonged to some guy and yeah, there was a lot of reference to the fact that oh yeah well somebody we know is letting us stay here and yet they're they're not you know the the house was dilapidated and up for sale so mm -hmm. that does sort of lend credence to the fact that maybe they are indeed ghosts, although they flee at the end of the movie uh, almost as if they know that something's going to happen to the house and they, they've killed too many people that they can't discard the bodies and they just figure they'll go and, you know, if they are vampires, they'll set up camp somewhere else. Well, the bigger question for me with this movie has always been the, the, the very basic one, just even after a first viewing of it, which is how many car accidents can you fake right. along this stretch of road <laughs> that's true before the cops just like you know cordon the whole place off and 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 plow it under i mean it's like the question of um how long have they been at this and uh, how long have they been discarding their 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 the their victims bodies in this way um, and is this or is this just the method that they've come to most recently because they, you know, they, they, they can't keep they, they can't have people just disappear any longer, maybe, you know, and, and have people poking around trying to find out where they've gone. They're, they're, what I love is that there are all these questions that are, that are hanging out there. They're not required to have answers by the way this, the, the way the film is structured or the, or the the small slice of time the what three or four days that we see portrayed within the movie. You know, we don't we don't have an we don't have to have an answer in that time period, but it does it does bring up all these wonderful questions like you know the the idea of the you know God save us a prequel <laughs> where we see them <laughs> where we see them uh, coming to terms with the fact that they're going to have to stop you know disposing of the of the bodies you know down a pit somewhere or something like that who the heck knows right but it's there it's there are so many wonderful little points of departure that you can have discussions off on in this thing. It's a wonder. It's, 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 it's a wonder. It's, it's far from the, it, it's the kind of film that I still love from the sixties and seventies where we didn't have to have everything buttoned up at the end right? with a, with a nice, nice little bow on it so that everybody knows, Oh, da, 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 that's how everything went down. No, no, no. This right. one just leaves those doors open. <laughs> and that's great because it leaves it to, to people like us to, to converse about it and dissect it and, you know, it, I, I love that. I love films that do that where they there are so many questions yes. unanswered. 
w- without being incoherent. Sometimes if a movie doesn't make sense, then it's not enjoyable. Sure. Um, uh, and then sometimes if a movie doesn't make sense, it is enjoyable. <laughs> That's a whole different case. So is there anything else you wanted to mention about this movie? Oh, well, I would just, I would just point out that um, this is, as you stated up front, this is a soft core, soft core horror film. And I would debate on whether you should say it's a horror film with softcore sex or it's a softcore sex film with horror. It's, <laughs> it's, you know, it's like, it's that eternal, you know, peanut butter and chocolate question, I guess, to a degree, but it is an exceptional movie. I think it still to this day has the power to shock, which is not something that you can say about a lot of movies from the period, um, mainly because so many movies have built off of the movies made in any previous decade that, some of the imagery, some of the ideas, they start to lose their power over time because you've seen them played out in other scenarios and other actors and other films. It just, it's the, you know, you, you start to not be quite as impressed with the first time something was done as if you, if you come to it, you know, it, on the, the sixth or seventh time that you've experienced it. This film, on the other hand, I think still retains its ability because of its visuals, because of the ferocity of things, because of the, the, the energy behind what's going on on screen in those attack sequences and the, the, the bizarre melding of sex and violence in a way that just you know, rubs your nose in it. Uh, it still has the ability to shock, I think, to a degree. I think um, all but the most jaded viewers will come away from this uh, kind of shaking their head in some, about some of the things that you've seen in this film. Right, right. Yeah, and like I said, I thought it was very evenly paced. It's it's almost a slow burn, but it's not. Yet it's it's got moody and slow scenes, but it goes by really fast in a weird it's mm-hmm. a sort of a weird dichotomy. So yeah, I, I think this film's probably not for everyone because of the amount of blood and nudity and viciousness in it, but I think that's that's its selling point. Yeah. You know? <laughs> for yeah. There's a there's a large subset of people for which you know for which that would be one of the major selling points. So, right. You know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I enjoyed it. I love this movie. I thought it was. Uh, it's it's now in my top tier of horror films in the early seventies because I think it's it's just it's you got to see it. Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, let's let's put it this way. Uh, this has always been considered one of the best British horror films of the nineteen seventies. And of course, you know one of the uh, one of the standout reasons for that is Jose Larraz, the Spanish director who, who wrote and directed it, who came came over here and made a few films. That this is easily the best that he made from in, in that period, because of what it's it's because of its power, because of the the things that stem from the images that he was putting on screen. But the uh, the the fact that a lot of people are still catching up to this. Don't get me wrong; this has not been a difficult film to locate over. Um, this has been issued on DVD several times. I currently, by hook or by crook, have two Blu-rays of it, for God's sake. <laughs> so <laughs> both with completely different extras. Wow. And it's one, yeah, yeah. It's one of those things where it is, uh, oh, if you want to have some fun, uh, one of the releases uh, actually popped up on DVD, I think the uh, Anchor Bay DVD first, but there's a wonderful commentary track that uh, Jose LaRoz participated in for this film. And it is hilarious. Oh, wow. <laughs> it is a blast. Uh, like I say, if you ever wanted, if you ever wanted to know why uh, this guy could be as charming as, as uh, he could obviously be, that commentary track done. Uh, it's imported over to, uh, I think, the Blue Underground 
Blu-ray as well. Uh, well worth a listen. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, man, I'm glad you chose this movie. And you know, I feel, I, I feel bad that I, it's taken me this long to to actually watch it and realize what a great movie it is. So it's always fun when you can find something a gem like this kind of thing. Oh yeah, don't feel bad, man. People come to movies at different times, and and uh, that there's there's no way around that. You don't have, not everybody. I mean, like like I say, I mean, you you might be shocked that somebody hasn't seen a particular film because you know their tastes, but you know what that means? That means they get to experience that thing for the first time now. Yeah. (laughs) That's a, that's a great feeling. That's absolutely. I agree. So Rod, can you tell the listeners where to find you online? Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. The jumping off page for most things for me is uh, the bloody pit of Rod, my, uh, my blog page where I uh, put all kinds of bizarre things up, including, uh, uh, the occasional review, either a book review or a film review. I have a long-running series of posts where I take note and list every film that I watch each month and uh, maybe make some comments here and there about various movies, especially the ones that I've not seen before. Uh, the uh, That page has uh, links to the various podcasts that I participate in. And uh, you just honestly, lots of movie poster art because I sometimes get absolutely fascinated by movie poster <laughs> art. So the Bloody Pit of Rod is the best jumping off point uh, to find links to all the shows and to just about anything else, including if you're just curious about the crap that I'm talking about, you can find where you can you can find where to buy those particular odd bits of uh, <laughs> often similar related <laughs> ephemera. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Rod, thanks so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join me today. This was, this was a fun one to do. Glad to do it, man. Thanks for the opportunity. Excellent. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Okay, folks, that's all the time we have for today's episode. Thank you for joining us for our special 2022 13 Days of Hallowtober event in which we're discussing vampire films this year. I just want to briefly remind you that we've got a live streaming monthly series called The Fright Lounge in which we discuss all horror media for seasoned horror fans, as well as those of you who don't know if you want to get into horror. We've also got a new podcast called The Cult Movie Lounge in which award-winning blogger Robert Manel and I discuss all cult movies all the time. And there's, of course, our sister show, The East Meets the West, in which we discuss Shaw Brothers films and spaghetti western movies, all of which can be found at our website, Haven Podcasts, that's plural, havenpodcasts.com. And while you're at our website, be sure to click on our Patreon link and TeePublic link to help support the show. We've also got a YouTube page, so please go to youtube.com slash user slash UncleDeath1 and subscribe to it. And don't forget to hit that little bell so you get notifications when we put out new episodes. And of course, we want your feedback, so please email us at thenisnow42 at gmail.com. And you can also join in the conversation at our Facebook Then Is Now podcast group as well. Then Is Now podcast is part of the Dorkening Podcast Network, so please check out the other great shows there at thedorkeningpodcastnetwork.com. That's right, folks. And all of those links, like I said, they're on our website as well as in our show notes of every episode. And we are on all the podcasting apps. So if you like our show, please go to wherever you download your podcast from and leave us a great review because that bumps us up the list in the algorithm and helps more people to find us. Thank you for joining us today. Class dismissed. Then
This now podcast is intended for entertainment, educational, and informational purposes only. Sounds, music, and clips played during this podcast are the property of their copyright holders. All original content is copyright Jupiter Media. shows like the one you just heard check out the dorkening podcast network at the dorkening.com